Welcome, and thank you for joining me for Ghosts of Arlington, Episode 9, Known But to God. Before I play the intro music today, I just want to warn everyone out there that um, if you proceed with this episode, you are going to have to listen to me attempt to pronounce a few French words, which can be very scary. I speak really good Spanish and really poor Thai, but um, I don't speak French at all. So you have been warned, and if you do feel the need to criticize my French pronunciation, that is okay. I 100% understand. Last week, we saw the end of World War I and talked about the efforts to account for nearly 80,000 U.S. combat casualties. Ultimately, the decision was made that families of the deceased could request to have the remains of their loved ones repatriated to the United States if they wished, and more than 48,000 did just that. The remaining were interred in eight cemeteries throughout England, Belgium, and France. Of all of the remains returned to the United States, none was more revered than those of the unknown soldier buried in Arlington after the war. I would wager that most people are familiar with this Arlington monument, but less so with the story behind how this set of remains came to rest at the most visited location in Arlington National Cemetery. This week, we will hear the story of the Unknown Soldier. I recently read the book The Unknowns by Patrick O'Donnell. It not only talks about how a single set of remains belonging to an unknown American service member made its way from Europe to the most visited monument at Arlington, but also the story of the soldier who selected the remains and the eight survivors who formed an honor guard to accompany those remains home and acted as pallbearers. I thought their story would make a fantastic addition to the story of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, but as I began writing it out, it quickly became longer than I was hoping, even after removing a lot of the details. To that end, I've decided that I'm not going to share the story of the body bearers today, but will do so later, probably as a special Veterans Day episode in November, so stay tuned. In October 1919, almost a year after the World War I armistice, Brigadier General William D. Connor, commander of U.S. forces still in France, first proposed bringing a set of unknown remains home to honor those lost in the war. Connor was inspired by France's plan to bury their poilus inconnus under the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, but General Peyton C. March, the Army Chief of Staff, dismissed the idea, and that seemed to be the end of it. 
The idea once again gained traction on Armistice Day 1920 when thousands turned out in London and Paris for emotional ceremonies honoring unidentified fallen veterans from the British and French forces. New York Times editor Marie M. Maloney championed General Connor's cause, but General March once again brushed off the idea. He noted that there are still hundreds of thousands of unidentified British and French remains, but that the U.S. had 4,221 sets, with more of those being identified all the time. March feared that any set of remains interred as unknown would eventually be identified. He also argued that the U.S. had no national arch like the Arc de Triomphe or national building like Westminster Abbey to place such a memorial. But he did concede that if Congress established such a national memorial, he would endorse the proposal. Maloney proposed a location for the memorial in a New York Times editorial, quote, This tomb should be a shrine for all Americans, and that shrine should be in the National Cemetery at Arlington, end quote. And Representative Hamilton Fish of New York, himself a distinguished Army Reserve Major, recently back from the war, introduced legislation on December 21, 1920, to bring a set of unknown remains home from Europe for burial with appropriate ceremonies. The bill sailed through the House of Representatives, but stalled in the Senate Committee on Military Affairs, blocked in part by the Secretary of War, who was also concerned about burying these remains and then suffering a future embarrassment of digging them up if later identified. Soon, however, the public support for the shrine proved too much to withstand. Public outcry, hundreds of newspaper editorials, and the support of the former American Expeditionary Forces Commander General John J. Pershing and Commandant of the Marine Corps John A. Lejeune, with such vehement backers, the bill was eventually approved by the Senate. After approval, the debate began on where to place the unknown soldier. Arlington was one option, but so was the crypt built under the Capitol Rotunda originally intended for George Washington. The New York Times liked that idea even more and abandoned its endorsement of Arlington for the Capitol, believing that more people visit the Capitol than the cemetery across the river. Another proposal was Central Park in New York City. The idea being that the victorious World War I troops returned from Europe via New York Harbor, the city was the first to welcome them home and celebrate them. The city should also be the one to honor this fallen unknown from the war. Besides, the tomb would receive many more visitors in New York than in D.C. or Virginia. Unimpressed by the Central Park argument and not wanting to turn the rotunda into a mausoleum, in the end, Congress chose Arlington National Cemetery for the site of the Tomb of the Unknown, where he would be able to rest with thousands of his comrades. Legislation making Arlington the burial site passed on February 4, 1921, and was the last piece of legislation Woodrow Wilson signed on his last day in office, March 4, 1921. Thus began the unknown soldier's long journey home. 
The quartermasters of the Graves Registration Service had gone to great lengths to identify as many sets of remains as possible. Even for the remains not yet identified, whenever possible, dental records and any other possible future identifying information went into burial files. But such information was not always available, and before long, eight sets of remains, four primaries and four alternates, were identified, two each from the American cemeteries at Einsmarn, Meuse-Argon, Somme, and Saint-Michel. None of these remains had any potentially identifying information in their records, which made positive identification all but impossible, and would allow all grieving families to believe the repatriated soldier might be a missing loved one. Teams arrived at each of the four cemeteries, disinterred the remains, the alternates were selected in case any of the primary selections had potentially identifying information in their caskets that were not in their burial records, placed in identical caskets, and moved to the village of chalon sur mar at 3 p.m. on October 23, 1921. Upon arrival at City Hall, the original burial files for the four sets of remains were burned, and the doors opened to the public, allowing hundreds of local officials and townspeople to pay their respects to the Americans who had fought and died for them. That night, the caskets were shuffled to ensure that not even which cemetery they had come from was known. The next day, October 24th, Sergeant Edward F. Younger, a twice-wounded veteran of every major American battle during the war, was given a bouquet of white roses and told to use them to select which set of remains would be interred at Arlington. Younger entered the room alone and slowly walked among the caskets. In his own words, he said, I passed the first one, the second, then something made me stop, and a voice seemed to say, This is a pal of yours. I don't know how long I stood there, but finally I put the roses on the second casket and went back into the sunlight. After the choice was made, the now official unknown soldier was transferred to a new casket, this one made of ebony and lined with silver, featuring a plaque that reads, An unknown American soldier who gave his life in the Great War. The other three sets of remains were taken to the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery where they remain today in graves number 1, 2, and 3, row 1, block G. As this happened, the unknown soldier was taken to the port of La Hève, where he was greeted by throngs of well-wishers, including France's Minister of Pensions and future war minister, wounded World War I veteran André Maginot. Yes, that Maginot, who placed France's highest honor, the Cross of the Cavalier of the Legion of Honor, on the unknown's casket, the first of many awards he would receive. By the afternoon of October 25th, the casket was loaded onto the USS Olympia, Admiral Dewey's flagship from the Battle of Manila Bay, and began the trip across the Atlantic. While all this was going on in Europe, Back at Arlington, teams were frantically working to prepare the unknown's resting place for the ceremony that would take place on November 11th, the fourth anniversary of the end of World War I. 
a vault was excavated 20 feet under one of the plantation's most prominent hills, a little south of the Lee Mansion. The chamber was connected by a walkway to the plaza of the new Memorial Amphitheater that had been built the year before. Above the vault, facing east towards the Potomac River, a marble sarcophagus had been built. The tomb on the hill was plain and intended to be a temporary marker until something more elaborate could be constructed. This would take another ten years to accomplish. The only thing left now was to find a fitting epitaph for the tomb. Hundreds of submissions poured into the War Department. Many of these submissions would be considered painfully sappy today, but conform to the literary manner of the time. These submissions were filed away and mostly forgotten. The final epitaph would also wait a decade to be revealed. On November 9, 1921, the Olympia entered the Anacostia River, moored at the Washington Navy Yard, and transferred the unknown to an awaiting cavalry troop while a band struck up the Star-Spangled Banner. The cavalry escort placed the casket on a caisson pulled by six black horses, and the tune changed to Onward Christian Soldier as the unknown slowly moved toward Capitol Hill in a light rain. Once at the Capitol, the six honored body bearers, who as I said earlier will have their own stories told around Veterans Day, shouldered the unknown's remains and marched up the marble stairs in the fading light. Inside, under the soaring rotunda dome, the unknown was eased down to lie in state, with his head pointed towards France and his feet toward Arlington. From his arrival in Washington, the unknown was never alone. Sentinels stood guard throughout the night, and a flood of dignitaries and ordinary visitors passed during the next day to pay their last respects, including President Warren G. Harding, Vice President Calvin Coolidge, Chief Justice and former President William Howard Taft, and General Pershing. King George V sent a wreath with a ribbon reading, As unknown, yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live. The crowd moved at a rate of 100 per minute, and the mountains of flowers left behind had to be carted away often to make room for more. It was estimated that between 90 and 100,000 people filed past the unknown on November 10th. At precisely 8 a.m. on November 11th, 1921, the body bearers exited the rotunda on a mist-shrouded day, carried the unknown down the Capitol steps, and loaded him back on his caisson for his final journey. At that same moment, an artillery battery placed near the Washington Monument commenced firing a gun that would mark each minute throughout the day, pausing only for the traditional two minutes of silence at 11 a.m. The plan was to have General Pershing, the newly appointed Army Chief of Staff, lead mourners through the city and across the river to Arlington on horseback as Grand Marshal of Ceremonies. He would have none of that and instead insisted on walking behind the caisson, content to cover the five miles on foot. The procession was headed by Army Major General Harry H. Bandholtz, commander of the Military District of Washington, who was mounted, 
followed by the Army Band, a drum corps, an infantry regiment, a mounted field artillery battalion, a cavalry squadron, and four clergymen. Then came the caisson bearing the unknown, who was accorded the final honors reserved for a general. Behind the caisson, President Harding strode alongside Pershing, and they were followed on foot by the Supreme Court, the Presidential Cabinet, several state governors, columns of senators and representatives, Medal of Honor recipients, and white-haired soldiers, sailors, and marines from previous wars. When the procession reached the White House, Harding, his cabinet, the Supreme Court, and the other politicians peeled off from the parade, content to drive the rest of the way. With the departure of the dignitaries, Pershing closed ranks with those remaining and marched out the length of Pennsylvania Avenue, through Georgetown, over the old Aqueduct Bridge into Virginia, and slowly up the long hill to Arlington, reaching the new Memorial Amphitheater at 11.15 a.m. To the strains of a hymn, the body bearers brought the unknown into the amphitheater, while those already present rose in silence. Pershing filed in, war mothers took their places, and nurses helped wounded veterans into seats of honor. Foreign dignitaries present for the ceremony included France's Marshal Foch, Britain's Admiral Lord Beatty, Belgium's General Baron Jacques, Italy's Generalissimo Diaz, former British Minister Arthur J. Balfour, French Premier Aristide Briand, and Chief Plenicou of the Crow Nation. Technicians fussed with wires behind the podium, nervously testing amplifiers and microphones for what was to be the first presidential speech ever broadcast across the country, which brought the Arlington service to thousands of Americans in far-off cities like New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. President Harding got caught in traffic and didn't take his seat until just before the ceremony was scheduled to start at noon. As he stood beside the flag-draped casket, he began to speak. Quote, Ours are lofty resolutions today, as with tribute to the dead, we consecrate ourselves to a better order for the living. With all my heart, I wish we might say to the defenders who survive, to mothers who sorrow, to widows and children who mourn, that no such sacrifice shall again be asked. Standing today on hallowed grounds, conscious that all America has halted to share in the tribute of heart and mind and soul to this fellow American, it is fitting to say that his sacrifice and that the millions dead shall not be in vain. There must be, there shall be, the commanding voice of a conscious civilization against armed warfare. End quote. Oh, President Harding, how I wish you had been right. After finishing his remarks and leading the crowd in the Lord's Prayer, Harding gathered up the Medal of Honor and the Distinguished Service Cross and placed them on the unknown's casket. These honors were followed one by one by Belgium. France, Italy, Romania, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. Admiral Beatty came bearing the Victoria Cross, never before awarded to a foreigner. Following the presentation of honors, the body bearers shouldered the unknown for the last time, 
marched 100 yards east to the plaza overlooking the green hills and placed the casket over the sarcophagus. After the burial service was read, General Pershing tossed a handful of soil into the tomb, saluted, and stepped back. Chief Plenicu ceremoniously removed his war bonnet, placed it on the tomb, and expressed his hope for peace to all hereafter. He was answered by three booming salvos from an artillery battery. The body bearers tenderly lowered the unknown into his crypt where he would rest in French soil brought over on the Olympia. The white roses placed on the casket back in France when he was chosen remained with him. A bugler sounded taps, and as the final note died, the artillery spoke for the last time, shaking the hills of Arlington with a resounding 21-gun salute for the soldier known but to God. The Great War forever changed the lives of many, both in the United States and around the world. It wiped out a generation in Europe, brought the Bolsheviks to power in Russia, shattered old alliances, and redrew political boundaries. Within the peace terms imposed on Germany by the Treaty of Versailles were embedded the grievances that would animate Adolf Hitler's rise to power and all too soon lead to the next devastating global war. In the meantime, world leaders did what they always do after a war picked through the ruins, welcomed home the veterans, buried the dead, and tried to rebuild some semblance of hope for the future. Before we end today, I want to mention a change in military policy that occurred in 1920 that went largely unnoticed by the post-war America at large. This change was in place by the time of the ceremony for the unknown. You may recall back in episode 4, when 84-year-old former Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston removed his hat on a cold, blustery day while attending General William T. Sherman's funeral. Johnston caught cold and died soon after. It was customary to remove one's hat during a funeral, but longtime Army Chaplain H. Allen Griffith grew tired of seeing friends and colleagues die from this sort of gallant behavior. Griffith wrote to Secretary of War Nelson D. Baker and proposed a change. Speaking primarily of older veterans, he said, Having for the last 18 years officiated at a large number of military funerals, I have become more and more impressed with the dangers incurred by men standing with bared heads during the services. Large numbers of men, especially in the soldier's home, are afflicted with thin locks and bald heads and in the cold, rainy weather, there can be no question but that large numbers have contracted colds that have led to chronic sickness or speedy death. He then suggests that in place of removing one's hat, service members and attendants might simply salute. In a surprise move for a service known for resisting change, on March 24, 1920, New rules for military funerals were announced, stating that hats would remain on and salutes would be rendered. Next week, we will continue looking at Arlington during the interwar period, trying to enjoy the peace that has come, utterly failing to do so, and knowing it will all be temporary. 
Once again, I would like to remind you that additional information about today's episode can be found on the podcast website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com, and also invite you to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as always, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.